So, Jay, what is Machine Man's deal? I really only know him from Next Wave, and I know that's not officially even the same Machine Man as the main guy. Okay, so... Originally designated Unit X-51, Machine Man was invented and built by Dr. Abel Stack as part of an experiment to build sophisticated and independent robotic soldiers. The other 50 models went haywire, but X-51 was sentient and a cool dude, and Abel ended up sacrificing his own life to save X-51s. X-51 took the name Aaron Stack in honor of his creator, and in the face of a rampant anti-robot discrimination, passed as human when not performing acts of heroism. Okay, cool, cool. So, what all can he do? Hmm, let's see. He's super strong and super durable. He's got some protection from energy. Oh, and he can elongate his limbs in silly but very effective ways. Also, flight. Uh, plus he's... Telepathic? An insurance investigator. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 395 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome back to... So, you know how we said we were done with Operation Zero Tolerance? We lied. Yeah, we were mostly done with Operation Zero Tolerance, because... We never got to learn Bastion's origin story, and weirdly Marvel didn't publish it for like another six months, so this is a Bastion episode. Oh boy, that that it is. What a note to go out on to. Um, I should say, by the way, that this is not, not my last episode ever, but going to be my last regular episode for a while. I'm going to be here for part of the winter special, and then I am going to be taking something like six or eight weeks to learn how to parent a new human, um, after which I will be back on the show, but in the interim of which, the amazing Al Kennedy of House to Astonish will be filling in. Yeah, so Al and I will be uh, keeping that X flag raised high. The show's going to be the same as it ever was, same format, just going forward in continuity. And uh, once Jay's young human is old enough to survive in the wild with a compass and a knife after a month and a half or two months, Jay will be back and we'll be same old, same old. I'll just be hosting the podcast with the baby, demanding that it comment on stories. Babies are excellent at remembering continuity. Most people don't know that. Well, see, they're in utero. God teaches them all of Marvel continuity, but an angel touches their forehead before birth and they forget it. Fucking angels. They ruin everything. You know, actually, that would make sense, the God part, because as we have learned from Fantastic Four, there is a Judeo-Christian God in the Marvel Universe, and that God looks basically exactly like Jack Kirby, who, yes. as much as, you know, he didn't uh, stick around for all of the Marvel lore, certainly the early stuff he would have known quite well since he created most of it. Yes, exactly. Yes. Uh, sidebar, I recently went to a Marvel exhibit at... Oregon's Museum of Science and Industry. I guess it was at the Seattle Pop Culture Museum a while back as well. There was so yeah. much original art. Yeah. And seeing original Jack Kirby art was practically spiritual. I've actually got an essay in that exhibit catalog. Wait, really? I, I didn't yeah. know there was a catalog. I need to find one. Uh, yeah, it's called Beyond the Mutant Metaphor. Wait a minute. I remember you talking to me about that essay when you were writing it. I didn't realize that's what it was for. Yeah. That is awesome. It is a small world when one focuses so much on Marvel continuity. In the words of Stephen Wright, it's a small world, but I wouldn't want to paint it. <laughs> yup. Okay, so, 
As we dive into this bastiony episode, your last full episode before you come back for part of the winter special, what do listeners need to know? Well, a lot of it we're actually going to cover in the, the issue coverage because these are two issues full, full, full of exposition. But I guess it would help to have a good working knowledge of the three characters we're going to be focusing on before going in, and those are three robotic and or partially robotic fellas by the names of Cable, Bastion, and Machine Man. So Cable, Nathan Christopher Charles Dayspring Ascani Sun Summers is, you know, actually most of that isn't really relevant here, which makes things much easier. Basically, he's a cyborg who came back from the future to the present, he's Cyclops and Sorta Jean Grey's kid, and we really don't need to worry about the rest. Right, for once this is a Cable story that is not time travel nonsense, and it's not even exactly Fate of the Mutants nonsense. I mean, it is, but it's on a very, very, it's enacted on a very small scale. Let's see, Machine Man, we pretty much covered the relevant bits in the cold open. He's a friendly, ro- he's a friendly sentient robot who fights to help the world. And that leaves Bastion. Bastion, that's right, our third robot man, not the, not the one from Doom Patrol. Let's talk about him. Bastion was the leader of Operation Zero Tolerance, a government-supported, international, anti-mutant paramilitary organization dedicated to protecting humanity by capturing and or killing as many mutants as possible. OZT was defeated when the U.S. government pulled its support and S.H.I.E.L.D. took OZT down, at which point Bastion was taken into custody. However, the man himself remains something of a mystery. We don't know too much yet going into these two issues, other than that no one could telepathically access his mind, and the only flashback we got was his body being built up from scratch by machinery. We do know, however, that Operation Zero Tolerance had a habit of implanting nanomachines into humans that could turn those humans into robotic prime sentinels when Operation Zero Tolerance remotely triggered that process. Many of those prime sentinels were created in a lab in New Mexico run by a jerk named Dr. Prospero. That lab was shut down at the end of Operation Zero Tolerance. Or was it? But before we dive into the issues for today's episodes, let's talk about this in a more general sense. So as we mentioned, this story came out around six months after Operation Zero Tolerance ended. That seems weird, right? I mean, you'd think you would have Bastion's origin be part of the crossover where Bastion was a big deal. But this was kind of deliberate. This was the first part of a lead-in to Marvel's M-Tech line. Do you remember M-Tech, Jay? Very vaguely. I mostly remember the Warlock series that was part of it. I believe it was all pretty short-lived. I think all the books were canceled in under a year. They they were, yeah. And you're right, Warlock was one of them. We'll definitely be covering that once we get there. There was also an X-51 book about Machine Man. There was also a Deathlock book, but, like, it wasn't about the Deathlock that everybody knew. It was this other dude. And, yeah, none of those books were really successful despite being heavily promoted and despite having another big X-Men story also leading into them that we'll get to in a little while. So, as far as the legacy of those three books, there's not a ton. Uh, Power Man 5000 did write a song called The Son of X-51 that was about Machine Man, but I don't know that that was specifically about the, uh, the M-Tech version of Machine Man. I don't know Power Man 5000. Power Man 5000, if you're listening, then hello, Power Man 5000. And also, what's your favorite Machine Man story? That brings us to what is probably no one's favorite Machine Man story, Cable and Machine Man Annual 1998, Engines of Destruction Book 1, Metal Morphosis. Have you heard my new band, Metal Morphosis? Yeah, we shred like hell, and we uh, shapeshift between every song. I would have just assumed prog metal, but yeah, you do you. That works too. 
This issue is written by Mike Higgins and Carl Ballers, penciled by Rick Leonardi. Hey, Rick Leonardi! Inked by Dan Green, colored by Matt Webb, and lettered by J.M. Babgins, who I can only assume is a hobbit. Or or at least a hobgit. (laughs) Yeah. Filthy Babginses. Uh, Anyway... Mike Higgins, also known as Michael Higgins, we've seen him before. He wrote some okay-ish Excalibur specials and an MCP story about Excalibur, the weird Looney Tunes one. Uh, his writing is, is fine. Some of his plot points have been questionable in the past. He and Ballers, in collaboration, are notable to me for one main reason, and that is that their sound effects are just goddamn bonkers. Now, as we've learned, sound effects are sometimes done by writers and sometimes done by letterers, so it's possible those are standard Hobbit sound effects from the Shire. I have trouble imagining a letterer being like, what is the sound a laser makes? A laser makes the sound Zorklunt. Well, in Middle-earth it does. Do they even have lasers in Middle-earth? I uh, assume so. You know, it's the expanded universe, probably. Tolkien was famous for uh, sanctioning that massive expanded universe. Right, right. Thus, you know, Hobbit legends, Hobbit rebels, etc. Exactly. Anyway, the other writer, Carl Ballers, uh, he's actually going to go on to write the X-51 brief ongoing series after this. I know him best from writing the Emma Frost series that went on for a while a number of years later, which was actually quite good. As for the artist, we mentioned we remember Rick Leonardi, and yeah, he was one of the more common fill-in artists throughout, like, a ton of the 80s and a little bit of the 90s. His style got weird for a while, and everyone was, like, muscular to a grotesque level. Here, he sort of dialed it back. It's much more of a 90s house style, but it's still recognizably him in the best ways. Like, his art has just always felt comforting to me, except that weird portion where it didn't. Also immensely appropriate to Cable. Yes, yes, very true. It fits it. Because that's the thing. This is supposed to be a Bastion story and a Machine Man story, but really it's just Cable as the main character and Bastion talking a lot and Machine Man mostly unconscious. Yeah, Bastion just does not shut the hell up for two entire issues. We're going to talk about that more a little later, but first, five heavily pouched S.H.I.E.L.D. agents will explore a New Mexico desert facility at dawn. Don't get too attached to these guys. And the narration keeps talking about just how badass they are, and that includes talking about the various martial arts that they know, one of which is Savat. I mainly know of Savat from White Wolf's old Street Fighter tabletop RPG, uh, where I learned it was a style of French kickboxing and you wear special shoes for it, Um, and I seem to recall it being like the worst fighting style in that game, which uh, nonetheless still had the best fighting system of any role-playing game I've played in my life. Like, seriously, it's really hard to find, but Street Fighter the role-playing game was great, and I love it so much. I remember it dealing with initiative in a really novel and really effective way, but you're forgetting something important about Savat, which is that it's also the favored martial art of Batroc the Leaper. Ah, famous excessively French villain, Batroc the Leaper. Et oui, Georges Batroc. I I love Batroc the Leaper. I love that he was in one of the Captain America movies, but I was a little sad he wasn't a bordering-on offensive French stereotype. He did not do sufficient leaping to justify his presence, I think. It's right there in his freaking name. If my name was Batroc the Leaper, I would leap at literally every opportunity. If I could take a step somewhere, no, no, I would just take a small jump instead. So basically you'd move like a video game character. Uh, Yes, either that or just doing a bunch of front rolls over and over. Well, he's not Batroc the Roller. That's probably for the best. There's a lot of gross stuff on the ground, you know? 
Ew. Oh, God, he'd pick up so much chewed gum. He really would, right? Uh, anyway, this place that these S.H.I.E.L.D. agents are savating their way through is, in fact, Dr. Prospero's old laboratory, where he was turning folks with disabilities into prime sentinels for Bastion. It was hidden underground this whole time. Despite the fact that OZT happened a while back, it was just found. Well, the X-Men had found the lab during OZT, but the area they had been in appeared to have been cleared out, and that was just the above-ground section. It's the below-ground section that's just now been located. Yes, indeed. And before we get any further, let's talk a little about Dr. Prospero. We had wondered about why he was named after the wizard dude from The Tempest. We had some ideas, and one of our listeners pointed out the obvious answer that we missed, which is that Prospero in The Tempest sort of binds and controls various spirits and such, which was kind of what this guy was doing to people by turning them into prime sentinels. Uh, you know, we know a lot about continuity. Sometimes we miss uh, metaphors or references a lot. When you're used to going through things with a fine-toothed comb, occasionally you will just hit a tree. Mm-hmm. It's true. And sometimes that tree will be imprisoning the witch Sycorax, and... <laughs> I love Leonardi's take on this facility. It's less like an organized computer lab, and it's more of this horror show of these hunched human bodies and these giant test tubes that are hanging irregularly from the ceiling under the dead-eyed, watchful face of this disembodied sentinel head. It is super creepy. It's got a very sinister vibe to it. Like, capital S Sinister, Mr. Sinister. It does! Yeah, you're totally right. I feel like Dr. Prospero and Mr. Sinister would—well, I would say they'd get along, but no, probably Sinister would, like, kill Dr. Prospero and then make some weird clone of him that was a hybrid with some other species or something. But they would at least have similar styles. Yeah, Sinister arguably doesn't actually get along with anybody. No, no, he does not. Uh, see the most recent issue of Immortal X-Men as this episode is being recorded. Oh, boy. So, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents report into their boss, G.W. Bridge. We've mentioned him before, old mercenary buddy of Cables that now run S.H.I.E.L.D. in Nick Fury's absence. But their call goes silent and blood spatters on the view screen, and Machine Man walks up out of nowhere to end the video call. This is so creepy. The violence is all, like, off-panel, which kind of heightens the mystery of the whole thing, but also the horror. Like, the intro to this issue is genuinely kind of scary. So, at this point, we should probably talk Machine Man, because he's been a hero thus far, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah, so who is this gentle stranger with limbs like Inspector Gadget and clothes of purple? We mentioned that the Machine Man in Next Wave, which is probably what a lot of modern readers are familiar with, is not actually the same dude that was recently retconned in, I believe, uh, Marvel Comics number 1000 or 1001, uh, one of them, to just be an imposter, which, fair enough, I mean, the one in Next Wave acts completely different. But the actual dude, my favorite thing about him is where he first appeared. Right, because he came from Jack Kirby's incredibly loose adaptation of 2001 A Space Odyssey. Yes, yes, Machine Man's first appearance was in 2001 A Space Odyssey number 8, uh, which I, I love the fact that that's technically canon. Like, Doctor Who is technically Marvel canon, so is Transformers, so is Godzilla, so is 2001 A Space Odyssey, so is um, Team uh, America, uh, that as well. Uh, and while they can't mention those things anymore, it's still part of the lovely, often action figure and or psychedelic movie-based tapestry that is Marvel's various licensed properties. Wow. 
And, like, the references are right there. I mean, the special agent who investigates X-51 in the old Machine Man stories is named Jack Kubrick, named after Jack Kirby and Stanley Kubrick. I love that. That's a nice touch. So, as we mentioned in the cold open, Machine Man is the product of a U.S. military project to create um, intelligent fighting robots, the first 50 of which became psychotic and had to be destroyed uh, 51, on the other hand, was, was sentient and affable, and their creator, Abel Stack, um, tried to prevent him from having, be just having to be destroyed by raising him as a human, but, um, died. He, he took out X-51's remote detonation implant after it had been set off, but couldn't dispose of it fast enough, and so sent X-51 away while he, Abel, was, you know, exploded by the implant. Wait a minute. Dude named Abel Stack raises a killing machine to be human that's named X-51, who then takes his mentor's name. I'm kind of reminded of lady named Sarah Kinney, who raises a killing machine as a human and then dies in the killing machine. X-23 takes Sarah Kinney's last name and becomes Laura Kinney. I don't know if that's a coincidence, but X-51, X-23 both take their loving parent, pseudo-parents' last names, like— is two examples enough for this to be a trope? I mean, I think it's a pretty classic arc. Yeah. Oh, it's pretty great. Um, but yeah, anyway, Machine Man did a bunch of stuff. Um, eventually, a satanic computer called The Monitor looked through X-51's mind for the anti-life equation, which, um, that's all, like, DC stuff. But it's also DC stuff that was largely created by Jack Kirby, who, as we know, when he left Marvel, just sort of, like, lifted a bunch of Marvel concepts and just brought them right over to DC, barely changing anything. I mean, the new gods are not that different from the Eternals and stuff. So, so that's, that's what's up with Machine Man as of his appearance here. What else is going on? Well, it's also Independence Day, apparently, and a goateed man watching the fireworks in New York City with his beautiful wife and his adorable young son— as he talks about how he's finally living the American dream, looks up, but the Statue of Liberty has a sentinel face. Like, it's a really cool, creepy panel jump again with the horror theme. Um, and the facing page is also a chilling contrast as we see this naked, pink-skinned man floating in this big tank hooked up to machinery, being watched by scientists and computer techs. It is very, very Weapon X, and I am assuming that is a deliberate reference, going from this all-American dream fireworks fantasy to just this cold, clinical dehumanization. And if it's not clear, the, the fireworks scene we were seeing is, is clearly Bastion's fantasy or hallucination. Yeah, yeah, very much. And so here, um, we have Senator Brickman, who was Graydon Creed's old running mate from their ill-fated presidential campaign. Yeah, right? Um, this guy's demanding answers from Dr. Marx about things other than seizing the means of production, uh, trying to figure out what the deal with Bastion is. Because, remember, Bastion was taken into custody after Operation Zero Tolerance, and apparently he's been studied since then as they've realized that he's not human. He's just a technological imitation of humanity. Yeah, even his fingerprints are slightly pixelated, which is such an excellent detail. That is a really good touch. I fucking love that. And they have, like, a close-up image which shows it. Oh, it's so good. Uh, meanwhile, in Alaska, Cable is creeping around, snooping on his extended family. Um, he, is, he is watching Scott and Jean, who've recently moved back to Alaska on leave from the X-Men for reasons that you'll learn about in, in future episodes, um, are, are hanging out with... with Scott's grandparents and and Cable is just sort of moping about how 
his backstory is too complicated for him to really have a future with his family because if there's anything that Cable has inherited, it is classic Summer's family bullshit. I'm just saying, Cable, your kind of sorta mom has a backstory arguably as complex as yours, and she's all about family. Also, your grandfather is a space pirate and just straight up fucked off for like 20 years and no one seems to have minded, so you're probably okay. <laughs> right? So, okay, we know that when Cyclops gets all mopey, he fucks off to Alaska. Now, Cable has fucked off to Alaska being all mopey. Would you say he does that in a similar fashion to the way Cyclops usually does, or is it through his own Nathan Summers lens? I mean, we can't necessarily pinpoint what has triggered Cable fucking off to Alaska to mope. Like, whether he's specifically come there to lurk around what Scott and Jean are doing, or whether this is, you know, an entirely separate event where someone has has encouraged him to talk about feelings. So, I can't really pinpoint an answer to that. I will say his Alaskan behavior is, again, very classic Summer's family bullshit. Mm, lurking and moping. Well, there's no time for filial love, Dr. Jones, because S.H.I.E.L.D. shows up with a mission. And it's time to take a trip to the ever-unsinkable helicarrier. And some awesome narration. The place. Several miles above the continental United States, somewhere amid the twilight's last gleaming. The time, 1900 hours. And it is here, in the heavens, that life and death decisions are made. The clouds around the helicarrier are purple, and so is the prose. I really love the narration in some of these issues. There is, of course, a following bit about how absolutely indestructible it is, which I always appreciate, because, man, the only thing that gets blown up is— No, you know what? Helicarriers get blown up more than the X-Mansion. I think they do, yeah. They show up in more comics, so more opportunities for the unexplodable thing to explode. GW Bridge brings Cable to the, er, well, bridge, of the helicarrier, and they have one of those sort of hostile, bantery conversations that they so often do. And while Bridge is briefing Cable, he shows Cable a video of what happened, of one of the things that happened at least, which is Bastion killing everybody, all the scientists in this New Mexico base. This was before the S.H.I.E.L.D. agents showed up, uh, they were sent in to figure out what happened, you see? Yeah, Bastion was the one who was responsible for clearing it out. And Cable takes the opportunity to take a dig at uh, GW and at, you know, the folks he's working for. I get the picture, and I've really got to say something, George Washington. Speak my mind. This is the fault of your government, and the blind eye it turns toward the persecution all mutants face on a daily... Before you levitate onto your psionic soapbox regarding federal policies, let's not forget whose agents staged the star-spangled shutdown of Zero Tolerance. Alright, so let's forego the verbal rough and tumble. And then they fuck. I assume so. I The writing is so much fun in this story. Like, this isn't an amazing story. It's really just an exposition fest to learn who Bastion is and a lead into M-Tech. But, uh, man, Higgins and Ballers have so much fun with it. Meanwhile, in New York, the escaped and now boxer-clad Bastion finds his way to the house where he sort of grew up. Yeah, this is the house of Rose Gilberti. We've met her before in the X-Men chapters of Operation Zero Tolerance. She was the woman that Bastion had kinda sorta held hostage along with young Timmy Jones. And Bastion is confused and lost after waking up in that New Mexico base. His mom tells him to just do the right thing and turn himself in. 
alas, before he can do that, and he's not really willing to consider it anyway, some government dudes show up in a helicopter, and Rose ends up killed in the subsequent crossfire. The narration makes the effect quite clear. Gone. And with her passing, something within Bastion that had grown smaller and smaller over the years disappears entirely. This is one of the things I've always found most compelling about Bastion, is the contrast between him really attempting to be a human being with human emotions and a human life and human relationships, and those robotic anti-mutant drives programmed into him. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think I think that remains, in future appearances, one of the most compelling aspects of the character. For real. So, Cable is now on the hunt for Bastion. Bridge has sent him both to, to find out what's up in the facility, to try to find Bastion himself. Um, and he had thought that Bastion was gone for good, but, he says, because sometimes you just gotta say the name of an event. But he suddenly returned. And my own tolerance has finally reached zero. God damn it. Wesker, you are the resident evil. Anyway, so Bridge told Cable he could bring any ex-allies, but Cable says, nah, he's gonna do this solo. He doesn't want any of his friends to even know that this is still an issue. He's gotten kind of weird, because remember, at the end of the last X-Force arc we covered, X-Force went out on their own. Cable is on his own now. And kind of like the Doctor in Doctor Who, Cable is not always at his most psychologically healthy when he's alone for too long. Yeah, Cable is a dude who desperately needs sidekicks and or partners to keep him remotely normal. He basically goes completely feral otherwise. Except without the pigeon part. But anyway, inside that New Mexico base, past various fire bars and thwomps and stuff, is Machine Man, who, as we know, these days is a good guy. Except that he just killed a bunch of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents, and he uses his Inspector Gadget limbs to beat the hell out of Cable. They seriously are Inspector Gadget limbs. Like, I cannot take Machine Man seriously for that reason. I just keep thinking of Inspector Gadget. Oh, he's so goofy looking. Not as goofy as that sound effect you mentioned before, because this is where the lasers go, Zorklunt, Zorklunt, Zorklunt. They sure do. They sure do. Which someone on Twitter pointed out is actually a perfect sound effect for something else, which is that it is the sound of a broken washing machine. It is! You know, actually, my dryer's kind of fucked up right now. It is. It exactly is. Huh. I mean, maybe Doc Prospero was good at making Prime Sentinels, but bad at cleaning laundry. Or built his lasers out of broken washing machine parts. Seems like more of a forge thing to do. But anyway... Helped by the distraction of Bastion suddenly showing up, uh, now without even his boxer briefs of humanity, uh, Machine Man basically manages to restrain Cable. I'm going to answer the question that I know at least some of our listeners are asking as we discuss this. No, you cannot see his wang. Uh, no, no. Wangless Bastion. It's true. And that wangless crystal bastion approaches the Sentinel Head, which it turns out is not just installation art. It's not just there for show. This is, in fact, the new Master Mold. That was never clear in Operation Zero Tolerance, but apparently that's what it is. And this new Master Mold shoots lasers out of its eyes into Bastion. And Bastion looks a little different once this happens. That's right. Bastion metamorphoses into something much closer to what it will turn out was his original form, that being the Nimrod Sentinel. Holy shit, Nimrod. It's been a long-ass time since we've seen Nimrod. 
And we'll explore him in more depth in Machine Man and Bastion Annual 1998, Engines of Destruction Book 2, Deus Ex Machina. And I don't think we mentioned before, but this was the year that all of Marvel's annuals were team-up ones. They were character and character. Uh, It's not so much a team-up exactly between Machine Man and Bastion, but you get the idea. This is again written by Mike Higgins and Carl Ballers, penciled by Martin Eglund, inked by Howard M. Shum, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by J.M. Babkins. I cannot describe the extent to which this specific issue feels like the antecedent to Hickman's early X-Men, specifically Powers of Ten. Yeah, Bastion has a line that makes that parallel clear. Biotechnology incarnate, that which will pave the way for a new age on its pitiful orb. I would also like to point out before we get too deep into this issue that making a comic with that much text in that font is arguably a hate crime. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those traditional, like, 80s-looking computer fonts, but it's white on purple, and it it is a little rough to read. Like, maybe if the comic had just been printed, if that ink was fresh, it wouldn't be quite so bad. No, there's 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 so fucking much of it. Like, about half of every page is text, and it's all the, this this awful computer font, and I, I hate it. I hate it so much. And you're totally right. Like, that's so much of this comic. Chapter two of two of this story is Bastion basically being like, hey, let me tell you my entire life story while lasers are shot at you. What's great, though, is that Bastion calculates how long it'll likely take him to kill Cable and concludes that it's going to be 23 minutes and 45 seconds, um, which he, he determines is exactly enough time to tell Cable his full backstory. Like, he actually counts out whether he's got room for his villain speech. I don't know. We've spent more than 23 minutes and 45 seconds talking about Bastion's backstory over the course of our various episodes. Yeah, but to cover it all at once, I mean, that's about a third to half of an episode, which sounds about right to me. And if that's 90% of this issue, the other 10% is occupied by the sound effect Zorch, which appears way, way more frequently than you would expect, given its general non-utility to describe any actual sound. So if Zorklunt is a broken washing machine, what do you think Zorch is? Zorch is the sound of flopping down onto an old couch with audible springs. Oh, yeah. Hey, Dr. Prospero had to sit somewhere to eat his TV dinners. No, but everything Zorches. It's just it's just like the go-to sound effect here. Well, there's also a slurp that's used occasionally. That's the noise of Bastion-like interfacing with various computer surfaces, like his hand opens up and just turns into little cables and wires. And all the cables and wires and his hand, and he in general, is is this just intense, sickly bubblegum pink, which somehow makes the whole scene much grosser. Well, and like, he's so unperturbed by the whole thing. One of the bits of horror in this issue is that Bastion, now effectively Nimrod, has lost all of his humanity, all of his dreams to be, you know, a real boy, basically. And all he's got left are hate and bubblegum. Yeah, and so seeing that pink crystalline form that's always been associated with Nimrod, well, Nimrod's like pink and white, but still, uh, then go into the pink fleshy bits at the end, like, that is a juxtaposition that I do not like. It would be less gross if he was entirely fleshy. Well, he's, he's part of the ABC line of Sentinels. Wait, what? Already been chewed. <laughs> yes. Yes. Anyway, uh, Cable tries to escape by blowing a hole in the floor, which, as we have learned, is apparently Cable's new thing. Like, he just likes destroying floors. What the hell? Is he, is he like, a, a cyborg gopher from the future? 
Yes. Yes, he is. Now, Bastion's goals this time are allegedly, quote, to repair the damage inflicted upon the face of this planet by all simmering foolishlings, bad as mute. But his actual plan doesn't really seem to actually relate to that goal, because his, his actual plan is to eventually transform all humans into prime sentinels, which has got to have a hell of a carbon footprint. But you were talking before about that, how this feels like a lead up to Hickman's powers of 10. And this part specifically really does like Bastion explains why he wants to turn everyone into prime sentinels by saying, in effect, the only way sentinels can protect man is to be man. And I love that. That is totally the logical endpoint of the way sentinels have been handling things like from serving man's anti-mutant goals to trying to control man to now trying to assimilate man. Like it really fits. Now at this point, Bastion decides it's time to tell Cable his entire backstory. And he does all of it in excruciating fucking detail. So we will summarize. When Kate Pride sent Rachel Summers into the past from Earth 811, that's the Days of Future Past timeline, the newly online Nimrod unit attempted to follow. After some foibles, hiccups, and alternate timeline murder, he landed, now offline, in New York City, circa Uncanny X-Men number 191. There he assumed the identity of construction worker Nicholas Hunter and immediately got lost in the mess of an age undreamed of. And it mostly skips from there to the way Nimrod ended up. But this is just another example of everyone forgetting Marvel Comics Presents number 17 through 24, the Retribution Affair, which we totally covered. That's the one where Master Mold took over Muir Island and then split his good-ish side off into a robot named Conscience that he told to shut up at one point, and it was hilarious. We did not, however, cover the Incredible Hulk Annual Number 7, wherein the Hulk teams up with Iceman and Angel to fight the second Master Mold and rocket it into space. And we would apologize for that omission, but we're not actually very sorry. Uh, that was important, though, because it had to be in space to then crash into Earth to fight Cyclops one-on-one -on -one in that one genuinely excellent X-Factor story that Walter Simonson drew. Right, when he's hallucinating the Phoenix everywhere. Oh, it was so fucking good. God, I miss 80s X-Factor. I just kind of miss 80s comics sometimes. Anyway, uh, eventually, Nimrod, the Ultra Sentinel from the future who had come to the present, came into contact with the remains of Master Mold, and the two merged into one being just in time to fight the X-Men toward the end of the Outback era. However, by this point, Nimrod claimed to have evolved to a degree where he no longer saw mutants as a threat. And he exerted his influence over sort of the combined form to render Master Mold effectively self-destructive and pushed both of them and Rogue, whom they were fighting with at the time, through the Siege Perilous. You thought this couldn't get more complicated? Oh boy. So, uh, what's the Siege Perilous? Okay, so the Siege Perilous is a mystical gateway that Roma, that's the daughter of Merlin, gave the X-Men when they faked their deaths in Dallas and moved to Australia. The Siege Perilous would theoretically launch anyone who passed through it into a new life, some of which proved to be significantly better than others. In the case of Master Mold and Nimrod, um, the two of them merged and came to as a naked, apparently human man with no memories. Said naked man was taken in by a woman named Rose Gilberti. She named him Sebastian and raised him to be a very nice boy with a pretty okay goatee. At this point in Bastion's villain splaining, we see some TVs fly out of the wall that have a crying Rose Gilberti's face on them, and then they smash into Cable. He is literally being attacked by exposition, as are we all. So, 
Speaking of attacked by exposition, despite Rose's good influence, Bastion was effectively radicalized by anti-mutant news and propaganda, and he used his future knowledge, and specifically his future engineering knowledge, to get in tight with Graydon Creed and start up Operation Zero Tolerance. I really like this. I really like that the Siege Perilous deems that a good fate for the merged Nimrod and Master Mold would be to have a chance to be a normal human. And that maybe that would have happened, except that humanity's anti-mutant bigotry was bad enough to reactivate that latent anti-mutant programming deep inside Bastion. That's always how it works. It's not exactly the Sentinel's fault. It's humanity's just hatred and short-sightedness that is responsible for turning the Sentinels into something so much worse than they would have been. That's effectively HAL 9000's villain origin, too, to loop back to 2001. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Like it's it's specifically the lo- it's specifically the logic errors created by the bi- the bigotry of his creators and programmers. Oh, that's it's it's so perfect. So, I guess at this point, um, Bastion wants to turn Machine Man into the Sentinel Supreme, but Cable does what we sort of can tell he's going to do from the start, which is appeal to the good Machine Man, and of course the good wins. And Machine Man blows up the clinic and yeets them out, and Cable uses his telekinesis to spread the explosion and thus the component dust of Bastion as far as possible to the immense confusion of the Shield troops who've just been sent to blow it up. So there we go. The good guys win. Cable survives. Bastion is theoretically dead. Machine Man is restored to being heroic. Long term, this will accomplish absolutely nothing. Bastion will, of course, come back. Of course. This will make a big difference for Machine Man, though, because as we mentioned, this story, and an X-Men story we'll cover later, lead into M-Tech, and they lead into the new X-51, which is to say Machine Man, ongoing series. And Machine Man was actually going to struggle with this sentinel programming that's been crammed into him by this plotline for most of that series. That's going to be kind of his primary deal, is trying to be a hero and override that evil sentinel stuff inside him. I think part of it is just that X-Men was incredibly successful, as much as Marvel was going bankrupt and everything was kind of falling apart at this point. So they figured the more X stuff they could cram into the backstory and even current story of another character, the better that character's book might sell. Well, and by this point, the first movie had to already be in development, right? Uh, I I guess it probably would have been, because this was in 1998, and the movie wasn't that long after. So yeah, I'm sure people were at least talking. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it must have been in some form of production or pre-production. Meanwhile, as appropriate to the whole Bastion situation, you've got questions. And boy, so do we. But let's get to yours first. Compelled Infidel asks on Tumblr, What would a modern version of Bastion be like, or what would you like a modern version to be? So I think a modern Bastion would 100% end up a talk radio and or podcast host who used the word groomers fucking continually. Oh, you are not wrong. Yeah, and like modern Operation Zero Tolerance would primarily, they wouldn't do military stuff, they would just run disinformation campaigns on social media. They'd like amplify the seeds of bigotry in some people uh, from like mild racism to frothing bigoted rage. Like, And I can totally see Bastion himself, yeah, being one of those pseudo-populist, anti-intellectual figures that drew tons of people in. People who showed up outside suspected mutant-positive places with weapons would describe themselves as sentinels. 
Yeah, like proudly. And uh, Operation Zero Tolerance and Bastion would probably be great at taking advantage of the government's inability to actually do anything about people who like flagrantly violate social norms or just break the law without even caring about it. I This topic is like, it's way too relevant. I hate that it's way too relevant, but but we did choose to talk about X-Men, which often does stuff like that. Fucking relevance, man. So speaking of, of historical and, and political relevance, um, our next question is from an anonymous listener on Tumblr who asks, for any of the ageless mutants like Mystique or Logan, what historical event would you like to have seen them participate in? Uh, historically, I would kind of love to see Logan as being key to Y2K not being a techno-apocalypse. Uh, for any of our listeners too young to remember that, when the clock ticked over to January 1st, uh, 2000, there was this worry that computer programming that had never factored in a year that started with two would all fail, and, like, everything around the world would shut down, and hospitals would, you know, have their power go out, and planes would crash and stuff, and almost none of that actually happened. But it, it didn't actually happen because engineers put in an incredible amount of time and work into preventing it from happening. Like, this is—we we talk about it dismissively because it didn't happen, but this is a thing that was, like, a very real and active threat that was then addressed to the scale that it was an issue. Yes. And in the Marvel Universe, I bet why that worked is because while those intrepid programmers and IT technicians were working on this issue, Logan was protecting them all from the armies of ninjas and or demons and or aliens that were trying to make sure Y2K did wipe out humanity. Yeah. I feel like Hank Pym has to have been somehow involved. Uh, probably. Probably true. Reed Richards, you know. Uh, but all of that said— I also kind of wish Logan would grow and change as society does in the modern era, too. Like, when we see his various flashbacks and various historical eras, we see him kind of acting and dressing, etc., as was appropriate for that time period. Like, he sort of grew and changed with society. But then it just sort of seemed like he got stalled out in the early 70s where he first appeared. So I'd love to see Logan, like, fighting for racial justice and queer and trans rights and, like, learning to use social media, even if we would probably quit it three months later, except for, like, the untapped beer app where you check in the different beers you try and rate them. I bet he would still use that. Uh, or, you know, see him get— But he only ever drinks one beer. Uh, it, it's true, and just continually rates it five stars. Uh, well, four and a half stars. Nothing's perfect. Uh, or, like, I don't know, see Logan get great at disc golf and join a league or something. Like, I just want to see him do things that, you know, have come into existence in the past— 50 freaking years. I would very, very much like to see Mystique and Destiny heavily integrated into queer history, and especially radical queer history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't imagine they wouldn't have been involved in that. Like, that just seems like it's gotta be part of their canon, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it fits the characters and obviously their relationship, but it also fits them character and personality-wise. Like, I, I want them involved in, you know, staging... In, in being talked down from a more radical version of die-ins in the 80s. Oh, Mystique would do some awful, awful things. But, like, you know, for good reason, as is usually the case with Mystique. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So today, let's hear from ZZ105. Thank you for joining us for five hours of tone poems featuring singing bowls and the soothing whir of a Defense Department server bank. Only on ZZ105. Today's programming is brought to you by Josh Ojeda, Badger5, and by the Worthington Foundation for a Brighter Tomorrow. Tune in next time for muffled ambient electronica punctuated by desperate pleas for funding. And with that... 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode, alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, uh, we're taking a break for the holidays, but we'll be back the week after with our annual winter special. Featuring writer Al Ewing and New Mutants Truth or Death. <laughs>